Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Nicola Graham. Nicola is the Managing Director at Tops Health, a private promotion business with physiotherapy very much at its heart. Um, Nicola, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, at this point in the programme, um, customarily we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start with that because it's proven to be such a challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for the likes of yourselves, just to what extent has it affected you and your business? It's um, it's definitely been a roller coaster, and I'm sure a lot of people can describe that from just a, both a personal perspective of being a leader of a business, but also the challenges it faces in delivering your business and the services that um, services that we deliver. So, as you said, we're as primarily a and historically a physiotherapy business. Um, we were actually uh, on the exemption list to not close back in March, but mm. we were advised by our governing body that uh, we were no longer allowed or um, shouldn't be seeing people face-to-face for physiotherapy sessions, which ultimately then, if we're moving everything online, it did mean that we physically closed our building. We also do a high proportion of um, health promotion classes, as you mentioned, so Pilates, yoga style, um, a lot of them delivered by physiotherapists. Um, as part of kind of ongoing rehabilitation. So again, we've moved all of those online. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been really interesting. It's been, I think, quite exhausting for people. Uh, But also there are some positives. We've always wanted to do online delivery of classes as well as virtual physiotherapy sessions. And when you're forced into that situation, you realize actually how well they run. Um, And also some really great positives from the point of view of just showing what a fantastic team we are and actually how uh, valued we are by our clients as well from the point of view of just keeping them literally physically moving uh, and the mental health benefits associated with being able to be physically active. So, um, yes, tough, but Mm. also, as I say, we try to find the positives in it as well. Um, so we we reopened again our physical buildings on the 1st of June and um, have seen a huge demand for physiotherapy, um, either because people can't access their GP or they can't access the NHS um, services of physio. So uh, they are paying privately for that. Um, and just the feedback on our classes is that people just really value that consistency in their uh, weekly schedule, I suppose, really, of their regular class because mm. it, it, the weeks definitely during lockdown did feel quite monotonous with a little difference between a weekday and a weekend day. So it just created some stability in people's lives as well and just shows the community aspect of some of our work as well and, and that ability to kind of keep in contact with people, even if it is through the computer screen, how mm. important that is for people. 
It's massive for people's mental health, isn't it? And technology certainly has played a key part in keeping those communication channels open. Um, so it's good to hear that, that, of course, the online provision side of things has worked quite well. Um, is that something that you can see lasting for quite a while? And the reason I ask that question is not because I'm expecting that this is going to be a norm just for the winter months, but even when we do hopefully have a working vaccine in place, it is likely that just given the anxiety that this is going to cause people in the long term and the impact it will have on consumer confidence perhaps for quite some time, it could take a while, even when the virus itself is no longer an issue, for people to sort of drum up the confidence to go out and be doing things face to face again so this could well be the way for a while definitely and and it just highlighted i suppose around just hygiene as a whole and our interaction with people and um whether we want to be going to for example let's say a yoga studio where your mats are literally right up next door to each other and you've got other people's sweat kind of on you do is Mm -hmm. that the environment people want so i think it just um it also kind of feeds into we just there are a lot of unknowns so working from home how will businesses respond to that kind of going forward what we what we know is that if people are working from home they don't want to then sit in traffic for half hour getting into the center of oxford to come to an hour's class to then do half hour traveling home so that that's kind of two hours out of your day instead of being able to kind of walk into a separate room away from let's say their desk and do a yoga class and that's literally an hour out of their day so I do think it's it's here to stay but I think it's here to stay for um, various reasons some will be around um, changing in kind of working practices overall some is because it does work really well um, for people doing online sessions we do know that and a lot of um, science is showing that this this won't unfortunately be the only virus that affects our lives so massively over the years to come so building the resilience for us as a business of um, some form of online digital delivery mm. is really important so we we do all our live classes online we now do a hybrid option where People are in the studio with us and we're streaming it online at the same time so we can have a, a larger um, uh, a larger group of people. And we'll also, we are also recording on-demand classes this month to launch at the end of the end of October so that people have a, di- an, a third option of how they can kind of exercise with us. Um, so, yes, I think the confidence is a interesting aspect but I think it's very multifactorial and I think it's mm. highly individual as well. Um, and we're just, uh, uh, the positives are that people go on holiday or they're out of our geographical area and they can still keep in contact with us. Mm. People who move um, to another country can still access their favorite physio or their normal physio online. So there are, again, there are benefits to it, but that that lack of face-to-face we're we're finding the best way around it but it's it is a challenge when you're doing uh, not just physio but most therapies that involve that want or you require that kind of therapeutic relationship you get so much from how people's body languages and facial expressions and that so you you do lose an element of that you 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 lose that element of kind of human interaction mm. um and i as you say i do think it would take it would take a, a long time for people to and whether we do return to complete normal habits or actually these are 
that lovely saying, the new norm, but actually it just becomes the norm of how, how businesses work and how people interact with those and each other. I certainly think we have taken that human face-to-face interaction for granted, certainly pre-pandemic, and we're seeing the impacts of that now. But it is encouraging to see that remotely there are still ways around that and that it is working quite well, having that very sort of largely remote-orientated provision. Now, as well as, of course, realising over this period of time out of necessity, really, that that does work quite well, is there anything else in your leadership capacity over COVID-19 that you've actually learned, would you say, from all of this? For me, it's actually just to slow down a little bit. I'm, um, I'm, I'm by personality quite a kind of, I suppose, rusher. Uh, but I, I like things to be quite dynamic. I like things to be moving, constantly evolving, mm. um, challenging new practices. How can we do things better? How can we things, do things different? But I do think there's an element of just if things are working well, just stick to it. But you don't need to kind of shake everything up all the time I think there has been so many changes that are out of our control Mm. if you can just create some stability for the people around you and that for me that will be the kind of the staff that I work with and manage then actually they really appreciate that it's one part of their life that actually is staying quite stable Um, and obviously the ability that we can create both I suppose stable income but also just a stable environment for people then it's one part of their life that stays yeah nice and confident for them so Mm. from my perspective it's just been kind of just keep from a leadership style just keep things quite simple be communicative and be quite transparent about the challenges but also just try to keep stability for people. And those elements certainly are very important for maintaining the well-being of those people around you. And you've summed up quite nicely there as well that when you are drummed, sort of drawn into the hectic world of running a business and things are constantly changing and you want things to be really dynamic, sometimes you do just need to sort of take a step back and take stock for your own well-being as well. Because when you're so sort of invested in safeguarding everyone else's mental health, it can be easy sometimes to just forget your own in leadership role. And it sort of brings us back to that phrase that it can be lonely at the top sometimes. It can, definitely. And I'm first to admit that actually lockdown for me as a business leader was easier than coming out of lockdown because Mm. it was a bit more black and white at that stage. We knew what we could do and what we couldn't do. And then once you start to open things up, so kind of from our June onwards, that was much more of a you're constantly learning from your practices and your policies and updating them and and how did that work let's see if we can change that so there was you were back to this slight i suppose unstable environment now we've been doing it for a, a good few months now regardless of kind of what happens around us we feel we'll be we'll be staying as i say we were one of the businesses from a healthcare perspective that doesn't need to close anyway we are covid secure with our policies and things so I think we will stay the same now going forward but yes and I also read and was listening to quite an interesting someone was doing a diary of their kind of COVID which I think is now being published as a book but people thought they haven't done anything this year Mm. and even if you look at both personally what you've done but also as a business how much you've had to adapt and the things that you had put on the back burner for many years that you've been forced to do we've actually it feels like 2020 has been a write-off year, but actually loads has happened and continues to happen and develop. And 
we probably should just reflect upon that of all the, as I say, all the aspects of development that we may have put off, actually how far we've come in a short period of time as well. There is certainly a lot that you can do when everything closes down and people have used lockdown as an opportunity to better themselves. You are absolutely right there. Um, of course, keeping it sort of sport related, I read a fantastic story on social media actually um, not uh, too long ago of a young chap who used the lockdown period to get himself fit, lose quite a lot of weight, started playing um, semi-professional football again and he ended up scoring the winner in an FA Cup match recently for his team. So uh, that just goes to show that you know it, it, it can work for you if you just use the opportunity to focus on yourself and use it as a period of self-reflection the outcomes can indeed be very good um yeah and just thinking about that as well for a moment nicola um i'd like to sort of get a message of positivity out there perhaps to some younger generations of listeners that might be tuning into this today because it's so easy for a lot of young people especially to look at the economic situation become quite downhearted about what COVID-19 is doing to their employment prospects, especially. So as somebody who is a business leader yourself, um, what sort of message of advice would you give to downhearted youngsters to get them to pick up their heads and really start on the road to success at a time like this? It, it, it has been hard in that we've still had continual kind of work experience student requests. And at the moment, we've just had to put them off until we've said kind of we'll review it in January. But we've mm. been doing different things with people where we can still, uh, we will um, do a Zoom call with them and answer any questions they have. Um, so it's a bit more of a kind of a succinct and they're not getting to see what we're doing day to day, but we can still answer any of the questions and give them encouragement for if, if, for example, they're looking for a career in health or uh, well-being and physiotherapy, then we, we are still trying to provide that because I do think it's an opportunity for people to look at kind of really what their skills are, but also, mm. and this is again personal to me, is how you want your work-life balance to look as well. And, mm. and I do think that's an aspect that's come out more recently as well that if we are working 60 70 hours a week what are we doing that for and what benefit are we getting out of it and who are we doing that for so just making sure that kind of going forward that there's some consideration of what your whole life looks like not just your career but being adapt a lot of our being quite um flexible in a lot of our skills that we have as individuals, as let's say from a communication point of view or a leadership point of view, they're very transferable to mm-hmm. different sectors and careers. So um, being kind of open-minded, being flexible, still using the opportunity to network and, and talk to people, even if that is in a different way than usual. So online rather than uh, physically meeting up with different people. Um, and, and what has become, I think, and again, I can relate it to kind of fitness, health, and um, people have opened up there because everything went online. You can you can do classes with people across the world that you couldn't do before. You get to see inside people's businesses and studios because they've put it online. They've put it on social media. So it can be a way to, I suppose, just research, but also connect to people um, and, and just knowing what your personal skills are and that the fact that they can be transferred a lot across different sectors and different jobs which therefore doesn't close off every opportunity to you 
Mm, exactly right. Um, it is a period to really reflect on what you're good at and understand that skills are indeed transferable. You are absolutely right. And just thinking about um, the future now and what we can expect uh, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I am conscious that we are running short of time. Um, we know that over the course of the year, the next 12 months, that we're going to have to, for the large part of it anyway, persist with the new normal, as we've called it today. Um, there will be restrictions in place perhaps until the spring, but hopefully by the time that comes around, then may, fingers crossed, also be a working vaccine in place and we can start thinking about then leaving coronavirus behind. Um, but over this whole 12-month period, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Tops Health specifically, Nicola, and where do you see yourselves being in a year's time? So um, we definitely want to kind of um, really um, cement in our online delivery. So that's from both a physiotherapy perspective, but also our classes and ensure that they're the best that we can deliver and make that an ongoing priority kind of going forward. Um, We are also um, relocating one of our uh, main sites in Oxford and we're collaborating with another um, business in the area who run a health gym. So it's using it's the people that um, other businesses that you may have kind of had a relationship with, but it was quite loose and informal. We're just going to um, cement that and, as I say, kind of uh, collaborate with them going forward. Um, because I do think if you can get through these next 12 months and actually survive it, that's a, a good starting point but if you can survive it and then be in a position where actually you've got quite a strong delivery when the confidence does grow and potentially restrictions are lifted and lifted a bit more then that's going to be an even stronger place for us to be in so we i strongly believe that health and well-being will be high up people's agenda Mm. how that's delivered and how that's delivered safely that gives people confidence i think you can put your own mark to really um the the days of kind of like 30 people in a yoga class crammed in together may be different and people may not want to do that, but you can still keep physically active, which will have benefits to your mental health as well. And for us, we we do have a strong reputation. We've been going since 1984 as a business and and therefore keeping those good links with GPs, consultants and referral networks and Mm. that communication is really important for us going forward. So we want stability but we're also looking forward to the future and being in quite, a, as I say, just a strong position that we can deliver the services that we want to when the time, when the time is fully there. Mm, certainly going to be an interesting time um, as you say health and well-being is very likely to be high on the agenda and um, so will things such as sustainability and cost as well so it will be a fascinating time just to see whether we see sort of fitness studios and offices workplaces like that actually coming back in vogue in the future or whether it will be um, a much more sort of digital orientated uh, way of things um, it's going to be a very interesting time of change and just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the program to discuss your views Nicola I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and actually have you back on the show with us just to discuss how things are really starting to change in that regard that'd be fantastic I'd love to I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been a real pleasure having you join us on the show today. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, that is for sure. No, thank you. And you too. 
I'd also like to reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning into the program today. Do please continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure to welcome Nicola Graham, Managing Director at Tops Health, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final. That came after his famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. During his interview, Sir Jeff will be looking back at some of the highlights of his career, emphasising the importance of robust leadership throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks and support to our wonderful NHS. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if if, uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, A for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved it would be someone like Harry who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'd be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is... is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, 
I've off, I said I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game was the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, ten yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game's nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand, into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it, and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about... Uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could, after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks... Uh, uh, making it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were 
remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? 
Oh yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And it's always a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balls of wood gliders. And, uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three 
when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school in the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell him to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, 
the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup. Some world class players, and Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson. 
which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was. He is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time for the club and I was fortunate to play with Home City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, the American experiences were just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, 
you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.